I I call myself, you know, a grateful alcoholic because I, of my own volition, would not seek any kind of spiritual remedy. And I sure would not be going through inventories and reading them to other people and looking where my instincts are threatened uh, if it wasn't for, I started to respond differently to alcohol. Like the big book talks about that we will recoil. I actually found myself responding differently to alcohol. I made some amends, you know, because now I can see. I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collective voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Alice, an alcoholic in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Alice. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Happy New Year. Ooh. One day at a time. I know. Sam, are, are you a making resolutions kind of person? Hmm. At this point, I would say no, because, you know, every single resolution I've ever made has not ended with a check mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually am not a resolution making person either, not for the new year. Like I make resolutions, you know, during the year as need be, like I'm going to join the Pilates studio, right? I do that, but I have not centered my resolution making around the beginning of the calendar year. Gotcha. I also noted the wording that you chose there that I am going to join the Pilates group, not that I'm going to go every day. Oh, no, no, no. We, we're we realistic <laughs> with our resolutions. We're, re we're not lying. This is a program of honesty. <laughs> I so get that. I so get that. You know, I think my resolutions around drinking probably were waking up with the hangover on January 1st saying, yeah, yeah no, I'm done. Yeah, the lie. And that didn't last long at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting talking about the resolution process that we're in because I use my 11-step nightly inventory to really help me see the truth about myself, right? So there are the 10 questions on page 86, right? And one of the questions is, you know, have I been dishonest? And I used to think that was dishonest with other people. And now I use the question to ask myself, where am I living in a delusion? And I think resolutions really are about pulling ourselves out of delusion, right? Oh, I can lay on the couch and eat whatever I want and it's going to end well for me. No, it's not going to end well for me, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, and, yeah. and so I don't think about it as a, a New Year's thing, but I certainly think about it as stripping away the the blinders that I have in the way that I'm living my life so that I can be more and more free. I I really like that, stripping away the blinders. That's, yeah. that's a beautiful way of putting it. Well, you use that anytime you'd like, Sam. Ooh, do I have to pay a royalty? <laughs> no royalty. <laughs> So, Sam, what's happening on the show today? Alice, today we'll be visiting with Crystal C. of Dunedin, Florida. How exciting. Following that, we'll return to our recurring segment, Blast from the Past, with a recording of Sybil C. from Laguna Beach. It's a talk she gave in 1980. Sybil's one of the founding women in AA, the first woman to get sober in AA on the West Coast. She was a hoot. It's a fun piece, and the sound's good, too. But first, let's do this. Hey, Sam, how can I support the Grapevine podcast? 
since the grapevine is self-supporting, we don't sell ad space in our magazines, on our website, or even in the podcast. Grapevine doesn't even accept contributions from AA members. Wait, what? If you want to support this podcast, visit aagrapevine.org and click on store or subscribe in the new Grapevine app. is Crystal. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my name's actually Crystal C. And uh, I'm from uh, Kelso, Washington. My home group is Name in the Hat Meeting. Uh, we meet on South Pacific and Ash in Kelso, Washington, if you're ever in the area, every day at 5 p.m. My sobriety date is 6-26-2006. I'm actually currently traveling the U.S. right now. So I'm in Dunedin, Florida in a travel trailer. <laughs> you said the name of your home group is what? Name in the hat. Apparently there was a meeting in Arizona. One of our members, when the meeting was formed, uh, had gone to a meeting in Arizona and we were trying to pick a name. And she said, you know, why don't we put names in a hat? And so we just decided to call it Name in the Hat. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> we robbed it. We robbed it. If anybody from the Arizona Name in the Hat hears this, we took it from you and we enjoy it quite you a bit. You didn't rob it. It's, it's a legacy name. Yes. Yes, it is. I love that. Crystal, what was going on in your life that got you to a point where you considered even thought about going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Well, I was actually introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous by my mom when I was a kid. She, you know, she ended up having to go to some meetings and I was the kind of kid that you didn't leave at home. I, at that time, had already had some pretty significant resentments against my parents. I, uh, you just remember being in those early meetings thinking, I don't understand why y'all don't just suck it up and do better for your family. You know, mm. I was around nine, like nine to 11 ish by then. But by the time I was around 12 or so, I started drinking. And um, because I had the kind of parents that I had, I ended up an inpatient. Like every time I turned around, I got in trouble very quickly. I ended up going to AA meetings of my own uh, around 14 years old uh, in treatment centers. The good thing about being in the fellowship for so long is it was very inviting. I haven't had a lot of uh, experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was an arounder uh, that really drove me out of AA. They were, it was always a really safe place, uh, but I just didn't hear much until the end when when uh, things had gotten so bad and the disease had progressed so significantly that I believed in God. I was a uh, I was in a basement in Salt Lake City. I had done another geographical and I was I was trying to drink myself to death. And I kept waking up and I kept praying, like, why, why didn't I get to die kind of thing? And uh, the same response was, you never did what they told you to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so over, you know, a few days of doing that, one day I just woke up and I was like, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> I will do what they told me to do to prove that I'm right, you know, and that AA won't work for me or that I'm special or it's going to suck or whatever it was. And, I got here this last time just with a lot of information in my head about what Alcoholics Anonymous was. And I'm just really grateful for that because mm -hmm. once the willingness came, I was able to take action relatively quickly. And I'm just going, mean, that's, I don't know if that's the long answer to your question. That's, that's a fantastic answer to that that's question. A beautiful, it's a beautiful answer. You know, if you got here at 14, to seek recovery for yourself, right? And you'd been here, it sounds like years before that, around Alcoholics Anonymous. What do you think kept you when you were 14 from really coming, what we say, all the way in and sitting all the way down? I really didn't have a good concept of step one. 
I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous this last time, able to practice the principles when I was about 25. I really thought I was an alcoholic. I thought I got, like, I understand the action of the allergy on my body. I believe that once I put alcohol on my body, I have little to no control over how much I drink. And that was obvious from, from the very beginning for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't know that I couldn't not drink. I didn't know that. I thought what we were doing in AA was sitting around like white knuckling it and kumbaya telling each other we're worth it, you know, and processing our feelings. Cause mm. I got very mixed up with treatment and AA. I was in treatment multiple times before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous this last time. I just thought that we were trying harder and doing better. And I didn't, I didn't know that no matter how long I'm sober, that I have this mental blank spot that the black print talked about. And I used to regurgitate the black print friends to like treatment centers, judges, and anybody who would listen, you know? Uh, But it wasn't until um, the last couple of years of my drinking when, you know, it had progressed pretty significantly. I was very sick. I had gotten a DUI and I started going to jail and I'm not a fan of jail. Like there's a lot of people that can go to jail well, (laughs) and I'm not one of them. Uh, And so I started to try uh, to not drink. I really try to not drink. Uh, and that's when I found out that I could not drink. That that part about powerlessness, uh, the first drink thing, took me a long, long time to get. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing, you, you had a lot of book knowledge about AA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to say that knowledge doesn't do anything for us. Knowledge is a good thing for me to have. But knowledge alone doesn't do this. It requires some action. What was that action? What did you do differently? Well, from the time that I woke up that day, and uh, I actually went upstairs and I told my stepdad, who you know was one of the last people who were going to help me anymore, and I said, uh, I have to go back to Kelso. He was like, why can't you not drink? You know, why can't you just have a couple? I, you know, for the first time in my whole life, I told the truth. And I said, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. But I know some people now call it Anonymous who claim to know, and I'm going to go do what they tell me to do. You know, for my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous is that you don't have to think it's the right thing to do. You don't have to want to. You don't have to love it. I just started telling the truth. I got back and I said, look, I can't not drink. And there was like a lot of head nodding. And they're like, yeah, now you know what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So, so you know, what I did is I... I had gone to this name in the hat, just started. So so it's like a month older than me and my sobriety. Uh, and we celebrate name of the hat's birthday and then my birthday the next oh, month. Cool. Fun. I was the first person to get sober there. So anyway, I got there and there were some older guys there. And this one guy who actually had drank with my, my other stepdad, who was passed away by this time, he came up to me and said, hey, I know your parents or whatever. And I just had this moment of clarity, like, you know, that stepdad had passed away. My mom is still experiencing some challenges and, and this guy's not. So I'm just going to do whatever he tells me to do. And he said to go to the noon meeting. He said, get a lady sponsor and do what she says. And so I don't recommend it necessarily, but I went to the noon meeting and there was a lady there and I asked her to be my sponsor. I had never met her before. Again, I had nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. I was here to like do what they told me to do. 
she, that lady met with me and I met with her. She actually, she sat with me a couple of times a week and we read through the 12 and 12 in the big book. And she had me read two paragraphs and she read two paragraphs. And I felt like a second grader, you know, I was like, this is silly. Mind you, I'm virtually unemployable. I'm frequently going to jail. I'm almost homeless, you know, on the verge of moving into the homeless shelter. And I'm like, it's so beneath me to read two paragraphs at a time with this lady. <laughs> uh, but I did. Uh, and that action, I think of humility really took took me a long way because, you know, through the course of events, I ended up getting a different sponsor and I realized we hadn't done any of the inventories or whatever it was, but I got to stay sober for a long time, just on willingness, you know, and I had a lot of things change in my life and a lot of uh, ways that my, you know, my God showed up uh, and just really carried me along to do those inventories when it came time, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, the book at Alcoholics Anonymous helps me see this really important distinction, I think, as a, as a new person I can't see. It's the difference between learning and seeking, because learning is about the information in my head, what page something is on, like I can be learned, but it doesn't mean that I'm seeking the power that I need to be delivered. You know, I'm not sure about the seeking part, but I, I do often tell people that I didn't really understand what we were doing or what the this inventories were about uh, or even really why I was making amends or anything until after. I didn't even see a lot of that stuff in the in the black print until after I did it. You know, there are tools that, like you've mentioned, I can read about, like I can learn, I can write, I can read a book about how to fly a plane. But until I fly a plane, I don't know how to fly a plane. I can write a thesis on how to fly a plane. But if I don't fly planes, then I don't know how to fly planes. And so for me, it was like writing that inventory out in the three columns and talking about my mistakes in the fourth column. That just was for my brain. The 12 and 12 always made more sense in the beginning because it seemed to extrapolate and expound on stuff. But the simplicity of those like columns and me not understanding why we write them this way, because it seems so ridiculous, you know, when I did that, uh, this simple action actually opened up the understanding. So when I did it, I wrote my resentments. I wrote, you know, the cause and uh, that part, the column about the instincts that it affects. I had to guess. And I mean, I considered myself relatively right, even though externally it didn't seem as so mm -hmm. that I was, but like, I thought I was brilliant. And so the <laughs> fact that I could not understand what these, what we're talking about with these instincts and I had to guess, like that was very challenging for me, uh, but I did. And I had this very sweet lady sponsor who, you know, she, she calls herself a Susie homemaker drunk. And that's a very different experience than my drinking. My drinking was very public and pretty vulgar. And, and she sat down and she showed me, I, I read that inventory and I guessed at the instinct thing. And uh, she, she just looked back at me and she said, Hey, Crystal, have you ever done any of those things? And when I looked back at it, like, like, you know, I'm angry with my parent because they broke promises and they lied and they stole stuff and they did this or whatever. And, and, and I'm like, now I'm coming from a place of really knowing what powerless over alcohol means, not just like talking about that I have alcoholism, but really knowing like I can't fix me. And I've had tables of people trying to fix me for years, talking about how much potential Crystal has. And, and they threw everything they had at me. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous the last time and I could see 
that that my parents actually experience the same powerlessness that I do. It changed everything for me, like it does for a lot of alcoholics. But that instincts part, that has really been the biggest key to my recovery of like, where am I threatened? And, and it's also given me a lot of freedom because it's good that I want to have friends or to have a stable job or to have shelter. Like these are God-given good things. It's not a bad thing for me to want that for myself. It's just that I overreached my bounds, man, by like way far. And I come up with these brilliant ideas of how to fulfill these instincts on my own. Uh, and then people step on my toes. And like, it's it just really the practice of it. It seems to me that my God requires for me to participate in a community with you. Like I would love back in the day, especially to be able to just sit on my couch and write these inventories and read them out loud to God and and have it work. But it required me to say it to the lady and then I could see. Mm -hmm. And she got to see me see, which is really special for her because I was a feral creature coming into AA. (laughs) So Crystal, I heard you talk about this instinct and I wonder, are you talking about the third column where I look at the seven ways that I'm affected? And if so, would you say more about that? Because I think for new people, it's such a revelation to use the inventory to see ourselves in this very deep 3D way. I don't remember there being seven. I usually stick with the three, the sex, society, and security, right? You know, just the various ways that I can try to manage that with self-seeking and dishonesty. I'm inconsiderate, frequently inconsiderate. The best I can explain it is I, so my, my husband, which by the way is an AA member, he's not here to defend himself, but we've moved into a trailer, <laughs> a 30 foot travel trailer, and he's worked most of our marriage. And so he's not working right now. And so I, you know, we had these rhythms that are just very altered, right? So now I'm like putting my husband on my resentment inventory frequently. <laughs> For example, I think that because I've done the dishes or because I've cooked or I took the dog to the bathroom already four times today, like the the justice of the world is that he would take the dog to the bathroom or that he would do the dishes next time or whatever it is that I decide, right? And I, oh, and it's in my ambitions. You know, it doesn't even have to be like, well, anytime it's my husband, it, it, it threatens my personal relationships and my self-esteem. So yeah, that's another one. I just have ambitions about how the day is going to go. You know, I can be frustrated and I try to talk to him and then he says he will and then he doesn't, you know, and then I get this self-righteous anger thing going on. And so anyway, I write this down. I'm resentful at my husband because he doesn't do the dishes and he doesn't do, he took the dog body or whatever. And, and sometimes it's actually very challenging for me to read this to my sponsor because I feel like I sound like a child. Mm -hmm. And that's more of the, you know, I call it life-saving humility. Mm -hmm. Like if pride is the problem, then humility is the antidote and I need it anyway, I could get it. So if I, if it, it, it costs a little to tell my sponsor that, you know, I'm having this quote unquote immature, uh, resentments or whatever, then that's an easy way to get it. I'm a big fan of easy ways to get humility, but, uh, you know, it affects my instincts. And then I, you know, I have to look, where am I not trusting God for, you know, my schedule, my time, uh, my ambitions, God cares about me uh, to have good personal relationships, my God, you know, a a decent self-esteem. But sometimes I demand more than is due me. And I demand this 
human to fulfill these ambitions for me in a in a way that is just irrational. If I want to live on the human planet with human beings, it's going to be irrational to expect my husband to hit the mark every single time. Also, I invented the mark. So like, I really <laughs> have to. And this is all because I want to be free. Like, People had been trying to get me to see how I was contributing to this challenge with my parents all these years. And I just couldn't fathom how I could have a part in those relationship challenges. But when my sponsor said, Crystal, have you ever done those things? I, I could see my hypocrisy. Yeah. Like I'm having these expectations for a mom to be and do things that I couldn't even be and do. And when I made amends to my mom, I meant it. Like I've made amends to my mom because again, I've been out, out in Alcoholics Anonymous for a while. And, you know, I had thrown a rock through her window once and I apologized for that and all this stuff, you know. But uh, when I told her that I always held you to this really unreasonable standard, oh, and yeah. whenever you failed, whenever you failed, I rubbed it in your face every day for the rest of Like that must be exhausting, you know? And my mom bawled like a baby and I bawled too because I meant it so all that to say I, I was working at a restaurant which was rare for me to be working for that long I'd been working for months it turned out and I was pouring beer out of a tap and it occurred to me that I didn't want to drink it and that there were still boxes of wine in the cooler that I hadn't stolen uh be because I hadn't <laughs> been obsessing about them being there and like I was sold hook, line, and sinker on alcoholics mm -hmm. and anonymous ever since. I couldn't believe it because I have been trying to produce that effect in me for, for years and years. I, I love you saying that you had been trying to produce that effect in you for years and years. And for me, I had to let that effect be produced in me. And that mm -hmm. was by doing this someone else's way. I, I can't choose when that happens. It's that fabulous moment, like you're talking about the beer into the picture. Oh my gosh. This isn't an issue anymore. Mm -hmm. We look at the harm that we've done. We look at the way that we've participated. Because if I start divvying up parts, I promise you, I've got a slither and the rest of the pie is yours, <laughs> right? I, I, every Drunk or sober, I'm going to do that, right? In the third column in the resentment inventory, the seven parts are the role I assign myself, my self-esteem, the role I assign others, my pride my ambition, my security, my personal relations, right? My sexual relations, my pocketbook. And those are the things that I look at, not like what's my part, what's your part. And you talk about it so beautifully. I came to see that I had an over-reliance, that I was unrealistic, that what I wanted was never going to be possible. And to blame other people, it keeps me in the bondage of self. Yeah. Crystal, is there anything that you didn't get to say that you'd like to? My drinking was super public. So early on, people started to ask me to work with them. It's just been the greatest joy of my life. The way that my God has used all that, you know, vulgarity that I mentioned earlier to be like a key into the lives of other women uh, and to get to be a light that you don't, you know, you get to have a life beyond that deep, dark place has just been one of the greatest joys. So thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. So we've got a letter from Gail B. Sam, you do the emojis on this letter and Alice will read it. <laughs> well, Gail B writes, 
Hello, Don and Sam. My name is Gail, and I'm a female British alcoholic, the best kind of alky. Winky-eyed tongue-out emoji. Just wanted to share a snapshot of my AA story so far. My first meeting was on Halloween 2018. Scary that. Jack-o'-lantern emoji. God wanted to check how badly I wanted sobriety. I received a parking fine while parking at a meeting. Then my power steering failed on the way to the next meeting. Got lost going to another meeting. Bad things kept happening like that for several weeks. Eyes looking up emoji. But I kept coming back. Then someone suggested that I make coffee. Angry emoji. I figured I'd use salt instead of sugar to teach them a lesson. I'm not anyone's slave. Fuming angry emoji. Two months later, I thought it was a good idea to travel the length of the country to an AA convention alone. I didn't even tell my sponsor. I was so relieved to get there sober and enjoy the event that I drank on the way back across the country. Big time drunk emoji. Three years later, I returned to AA as a Zoom baby. Baby bottle emoji. I'm happier on Zoom and so are the roads and the coffee pots. I'm now two years sober. I'm enjoying your jokes, information, and (laughs) accents. Thankful hands emoji and white heart. Very good. Thanks, Gail. That's hilarious. Hey, who are you saying has an accent? I just like, um, I figured I'd use salt instead of sugar. <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> Woo, naughty, naughty. <laughs> Gail, I am so glad you're sober. Keep it going. <laughs> thanks, Gail. And thanks for listening. Blast from the past. And now we have a clip of Sybil C. of Laguna Beach, California, speaking in 1980. Jackie B., a past guest on the podcast, that's season two, episode 12, suggested Sybil for our history segment. No, Jackie B. (laughs) is my friend. So Jackie wrote, cool story about Sybil is that her ex-husband, number four of five total husbands, (laughs) Jim W. was an alcoholic and a gambling addict, and he started GA. What? Gamblers Anonymous? She goes on to write, a few years later, he took a non-alcoholic woman, Roxanne O., through the steps to help her with her overeating. And yep, she founded OA. No way. Overeaters Anonymous. How cool. Sure did. Later, she, meaning Sybil, became the central office manager in L.A. for 12 years. Thanks for the history and the recommendation, Jackie B. I love you. And if you'd like to hear Sybil's whole talk, and we recommend that you do, go to recoveryspeakers.com and listen. Just search Sybil C. of Laguna Beach, 1980. You're not applauding me because you're applauding Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was going to add that when I came in, I had to think it over very carefully and agree in my head to do it on an all-time basis with no mental reservations whatsoever because that's the way they opened the meeting then in Los Angeles. This is a regular meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in California where a band of men and women who band together for the purpose of staying sober on an all-time basis with no mental reservations whatsoever... And I sat there shivering and shaking, and I said, what an order. I can't go through with that. (laughs) And I meant it. I really meant it. But I was the first woman on the East Coast, Marty Mann, the first lady on the uh, the West Coast, Marty Mann.
the first lady on the East Coast. She'd been sober nine months when I came in, or thereabouts. And uh, they made a fuss over me after they finally found out I was an alcoholic. At that first meeting, they thought I was a wife, and it was a closed meeting, and they told me to wait out in the lobby, and I thought they had excluded me, so I had hysterics. Called up Cliff very drunk and demanded that he send an AA ambulance and pick me up. Which seemed reasonable because in the Saturday Evening Post uh, article, there was a picture of a very sick man uh, on a stretcher being put in an ambulance and being hauled away. And I was in this church's steam room, you know, and uh, I thought they were wheeling him off to a hospital. So when I called Cliff to tell him my sad story that I'd gone down to the meeting at the Elks Temple, as Ruth had asked me to do, she wrote me the letter from New York. In that Turkish bath, I scribbled off a desperate plea after I looked at the article and, you know, turned the pages over, and that's about it. Got the box number at the end and wrote for help. She told me where the meeting was, and I concluded they just wouldn't have anyone who looked like me in their meeting. And I had been rejected and ejected from bars for so many years that, well, I couldn't bear that. And I gave Cliff a bad time and said, send that ambulance and take me to the AA hospital so I can get cured. Well, of course, you know, he straightened me out on that one. But I was never going back because I was hurt. I was wounded. I didn't think there was any hope for me anyway. And I never would have gone back if my brother Tex hadn't come over, insisted on going with me to that next meeting, and I couldn't talk him out of it. And I tried very hard. And that was reverse psychology because I didn't know that he was hurting as bad as I was and that he inside himself knew that he couldn't quit drinking either because he protested very loudly that he could handle it. But he finally agreed that he would go with me to the next meeting sober so they wouldn't be able to peg him a non-alcoholic, which he says, of course I am. And so we did go back to that next meeting. Now, at that meeting, there were about 12 or 14 members. There would have been one more, but Halston was down here in San Diego trying to start AA. Now, Halston was one of the four men that heard about AA in the county hospital, in the general hospital in Los Angeles in, in, in 1939. Johnny Howe, the psychologist there, who knew very little about this illness, was reading the big red book that Kay Miller, a non-alcoholic wife of an alcoholic, had left for someone to read who cared to, and it happened to be Judge Ben Lindsay who passed it on to Johnny Howe. So Halston and Barney... Clarence Mc, a bartender. Um, all three of those stayed sober from day one. And uh, Owen had an orchestra, the Californians. And I was a dancing fool when I could stand up. And I used to dance to his orchestra all the time. So he was one of the four. He didn't stay. But Hal came down here and had a hard time. Imagine one man going around trying to start a group. And there was nothing in the big book that told us how to start a group. There was nothing to guide those people downtown on how to start a group. And I expect that's why we made all the mistakes we did. And when I went back, Frank, who was leading the meeting, and incidentally, I point out here and now that Franklin Mark, they were our leaders and speakers for two years. <laughs> and I loved them deeply, very, very much. But at this meeting, at the end of the meeting now, all of this mail had come in from the Saturday Evening Post, and Frank handed it out according to area. If you lived in San Diego, you got it. If you lived in San Bernardino, you got a lot of 12-step calls. If you lived in Riverside, you got some, San Joaquin, and wherever, Santa Barbara. But he got down to the last bundle of letters, and he said, I've saved these 
for Sybil, because she's an alcoholic, the first lady that we've had here, and we've never had any luck with women alcoholics before, so now I'm going to put Sybil in charge of all the women that come in. And, my God, I, I sat there with my arms folded and shaking, and I thought I was down here last week, and I got thrown out, and now I'm in charge. So he gave me all those letters. And I went home with him, and my brother Tex came over, and we went to see all those drunks and took as many as we could to the next meeting, and everybody else did the same. So you can imagine that we moved from the Elks Temple right away to our permanent meeting place at 2200 West 7th and had about this many with short period of time with microphone and everything. And I'm skulking around in the back and hiding because I can't participate. I had a nervous tick. I was scared witless. I could not participate. So now think about... Uh, tradition one, unity, and our personal recovery depends upon it. Everything that we did then made these traditions today. Now, I'm not saying that California alone was responsible for this, but we know the same pattern followed in Akron and Cleveland and then in Houston when it started, the mistakes that we made. In the first place, I was in charge of the women until they almost threw me out. There were a lot of women came in in that first two or three months. And I was, I had my book up there in front, and I was picking off the names, Margie, she called on Leah, and Leah, she called on so-and-so, and they all balanced out beautifully. I could look over the crowd, see where all the 12-step calls were and how they were handled, and they had to really be on the sticker. They heard from me, and um, I was on the phone with them and training them all the time, and I was truly in charge until one time a gal walked in the door. She lives in uh, San Juan Capistrano now, and incidentally has never had another drink. She was a Pearl Harbor baby came in December 7, 1941. Came. She walked in the door. She had six women with her, and they hadn't been cleared through me. <laughs> and there was much disunity about that because I, I went up to her, and I challenged her, and I said, where'd you get these women? Kay, they're not in my book. She says, you bet they're not, Sybil. They, they live in Culver City, where I do, and it's quite natural for me to call on women in Culver City that need help. If they want to get sober, I'm going to bring them down here from now on, and I'm never, never going to report to you again. And I tell you, I got tears in my eyes, and I just, I just was shaking like a leaf, and I lost my little job. I knew that. And I went out to Huntington Park to talk it over with my brother, who had stayed sober and had started a group, the hole in the ground. And you know what happened. I went out there to tell him my problems. He said, resign, honey, before they throw you out, and I did. Because I was governing. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern, but I was governing. But, oh, that hurt, that hurt, that hurt. However, we did uh, used to pass out medication to our 12-step workers. Pete would sit there at the table, and Frank would boom out and say, Now, those of you who got your 12-step calls tonight, be sure and see Pete before you leave, because uh, we want to get those drunks down here by next Friday. And uh, so bring them down any way you can. If you have to give them a pill, uh, Pete will um, fix you up. So Tex and I were a little puzzled, but we went up to the table and we got our little jug of peralahide and, and we got two Nimbutal and we were on our way. <laughs> and that would create quite a lot of disunity today. <laughs> but we didn't know any better until we went back the following Friday and Frank said, Hear this, hear this before the regular meeting started. started. One of our members gave a guy a pill. He had a bum ticker, and his heart stopped. We called an ambulance. We put him over here in the hospital. He's going to be all right, but we could have killed him. We could have murdered this man. 
So I want you to hear this and listen good. Come up here and give Pete back your medicine. And we all went up and dumped our purses out on the table. He said, from now on, we're not going to play doctor. We're not going to play nursemaid. We're not an employment agency. We're not going to lend you any money. We're not here to give advice to the lovelorn. From now on, we're going to do a very simple thing. We're going to simply carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who have a drinking problem and want to get well, period. And now we'll start the meeting. And that's the way it was. And there was no more medicine dispensed. Thank God. The Grapevine and Lavinia apps are now available for both iOS and Android phones. To get yours, go to the App Store on your phone and search for AA Grapevine or Lavinia. I'm at the very wit's end. Cuckoo. An AAAAA is a recovered alcoholic who belongs to the American Automobile Association. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Search AA Grapevine in the App Store on your phone or find AA Grapevine on Instagram and YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, search online for Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. That was freaking amazing. (laughs) 